All right, welcome to Masterclass Theology. This is uh, Big Rev here from Ecclesiastes Chapter 7, and with me as always is my buddy Mick. Mick, how's it going? It's going, man. It's going. All right, so we're calling tonight's class Choices, and the the beauty of uh, our text tonight from Ecclesiastes 7 is that uh, the the teacher is going to be painting two basic paths, and as he's been wont to do, usually you got the path of wisdom and the path of uh, non-wisdom or foolishness or folly, but it gets a bit more nuanced tonight. And so uh, let's open up with a word of prayer and then uh, we'll get rocking. God, I thank you for this text. I thank you for uh, those who are listening to this podcast right now, Lord. I just pray that uh, you would challenge them and encourage them through this through your word. And I pray that 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 mixed discussion, Mick and mine, and our discussion can be glorifying to you, and that we can uh, uh, treat your word faithfully. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. All right, so we are in Ecclesiastes chapter seven, and uh, we begin with uh, with better. I've got better part one and better part two. It's twelve <laughs> verses here. This this kind of. Uh, it's almost like uh, the, the the author here has this big soliloquy, so I broke it up into two parts, but we go uh, better part one, one to six in chapter seven. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It's better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This, too, is meaningless. Wow. He just comes right out of the gate. And, boy, he sounds awful uh, dark and dreary there, Mick. He's just right yeah. away talking about death and death is preferable. And, and well, we found three things here to kind of help guide our discussion here. Number one, uh, seek what has more lasting value uh, over the other things, like a good name. And the wise understand value. We see this in ver- the first part of verse one. Wise people understand value. And. Uh, yeah, have you have you ever encountered that before, Mick? Where you might spend more on something, but you know you're getting something really good. Yeah, I mean, it, very often. Let's let's put it that way. I mean, you get what you pay for more often than not. Um, that said, you know, as, as we're going through this verse, I mean, it, right off the bat, it reminds me of uh, Proverbs twenty two one, where where he talks about a good name being better than riches, and obviously perfume being a a, a type of richness, if you will. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very parallel to what Solomon wrote in, in, I think it was Solomon who wrote that one anyways. Hmm. All right. Well, we got, uh, the reality of death and, uh, in a world full of life that should bring focus and perspective. So the people are living life and, uh, you know, we, we've got this, uh, maybe it's going away a bit, but we used to have this, this YOLO, you only, only live once. And this idea of, well, I just got to live and just got to live my life right now because I don't know what more I'm going to get. And, uh, you know, especially in, in this ancient world, death was a reality and no one was guaranteed more than, you know, whatever the life expectancy was. You could just guess, you know, sociologists could, you know, could offer various theories, 30 years, 40 years, however long people were expected to live back then. But 
you weren't expecting to live a great deal of time. And so, yeah, death was just a reality. And, uh, but to live with death on your mind, is there something more to that, Mick? Or is that just really weird and dark and depressing and suicidal? Or is there something deeper there, do you think? Well, I mean, you got Kohalith, um, it's just kind of when you look at that verse, uh, he's, he's paralleling uh, things. So he's saying a good name better than perfume. And then he's saying death is better than, than life. You're, you would almost think it should be the other way around. Mm. Uh, yeah, so it's, it, it comes across as very pre- pessimistic. Uh, but on the other hand, it, what it is, it, I think it, it's, it's deep, it's heavy, it, it's contemplative. I think that, that the point here is that it's, it's something along the lines of, of Psalm 90, 12, where it says, teach us to number our days. Why? That we may gain a heart of wisdom. So it kind of uh, goes back a little bit to even the, the proverb you shared last week, uh, 37 through 9. Yeah, and the, the whole point about numbering your days is that, you know, your days are numbered. And yeah. I I don't know the number of your days, Mick. You don't know mine, but God knows it. And God has already written those numbers in his book. And so it's a good perspective for us not to dwell on our death like we're looking forward to it, like we are actively pursuing death or anything like that. But it gives a good focus. It's a good focus and perspective. And honestly, you get this perspective if you were to attend a funeral. Maybe if yeah. you, back in the day when you people read obituary, people had papers and you read the obituaries, you kind of see. And you go to a funeral, maybe you read an obituary, maybe you, you see something, maybe you go to a family funeral or a friend's funeral, and you begin to ponder your own mortality. You begin to ponder the life that you have lived. And you, you begin thinking, well, gosh, what's going to be said in my newspaper clipping, well, what's, 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 what is, what legacy has my life left? Who have I blessed? Who's going to, you know, precede me in death? Who's going to follow me? You begin to think that way. And I think that maybe is getting to the heart of what's going on here. Is that, yeah, it's it's a reminder that we we are on borrowed time. Mm. So it all belongs to God time too, you know, all belongs to God. So seek what has more lasting value, like a good name, the wise understand value, the reality of death in a world full of life, bringing focus and perspective. And number three here, seek out the mentor rather than the yes man. Look at that in verse five and six. Better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. And in the context here of what the word is saying, this is like a morality lesson. So somebody who's actually giving you sound advice about the life you're living, not just somebody who just randomly rebuking you for no reason. But even then, uh, the, the, the more value into, into take your rebuke versus taking your praise. And so many people today just gather around them, these, uh, these echo chambers where people just repeat back to them what they want to hear. And politicians do this and, and people do this. And especially it's, it's present in our social media, the kind of things you like, like, for example, on Facebook. And you begin to understand talking points and you want people that agree with you. And you begin to live and look forward to people who are liking and commenting on your posts because you want people to, to, to say yes. You want people to give you that attaboy or a girl that you're secretly craving. And it sounds like the, the better path is to seek out rebuke, to seek out a mentor who might guide and shape you versus the seeking out an audience. Yeah, you know, uh, you, you hit on something really important there, big guy. It's the fact that people are constantly looking for affirmation. And, it, and it's gotten, I think, to be to a bad point because it's getting to the point where they want you to affirm things that 
are morally wrong. Mm. Um, you know, look, not to pick on them, but, but the, the LGBTQ and whatever other letter they've added onto it since agenda. You know, they, they just uh, they want affirmation for something that we really can't give them. And I think it's 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 worse, especially when when it comes from from people who uh, purport to being Christian, where they they say that, you know, hey, you know, you got to accept this when the Bible's very clear on the teachings of that. You don't need an affirmation. You need a correction. Yeah. And and there's and the, the beauty about sin, if sin could ever have a beauty, is that it is, is parallel and that sin is selfish and sin is sin. And so it doesn't take um, somebody sitting on this side of the aisle any differently than the other side of the aisle. So my sin is the same as your sin and, is, and that is yeah. sin. And so if I'm yeah. gathering around me, um, this kind of like sliding scale of I want you to tolerate me. But you know what? I want something deeper than that tolerance. I want I want acceptance. And you know what? But at a certain point, I don't want you just to accept me anymore. I actually want you to approve me. So tolerance leads to an acceptance and that leads to approval. And then if you disagree with me, you'll find some people in our societies that just can't take disagreement. And that, that's, the, that's the scary side of this. When you gather around mm-hmm. yourself a yes person, uh, you know, people who just don't disagree with you, the moment you do get pushed back, rather than inviting that and seeking a mentor to help you, you instead take umbrage and you take great offense at who would ever dare to disagree with you. And that's a very scary thing. I don't think anybody would look at someone like that. And we all have people like that. And, and oddly enough, if you have no one in your life like that, you are probably like that. But if you, if that is you, you're probably not growing in a wise way. If you never, ever have a mentor. In fact, think of your life right now. Do you have a mentor figure, somebody that you turn to somebody that is able to, I mean, you look at that old verse about iron sharpening iron, but when iron sharpens iron, there are shavings on the floor. And so there's the things that are cut off that need to be cut off. And so uh, in John 15, where I am the vine, you are the branches, and the, 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 the father pruning, and pruning hurts, and pruning gets one of the dead things. But you know what? There's something of value there. And so if, if you don't have a mentor in your life, think about that. So many people want to be a mentor. But they don't want to be mentored. They don't want to have to go through that. And uh, and again, it's it just goes back to uh, seek the mentor rather than the yes man. Any other thoughts? These first six verses mix for before we sally forth. Yeah, uh, as far as iron sharpening iron, a lot of it we got to think back even more about that. It sharpens it by the clinging. It's, it means it is being struck hard. Uh, and it also reminds me. I, I think it's it's Hebrews ten twenty four where it says. Uh, let us consider how to spur each other on to love and good works. Uh, the word spur, what is, we all know what a spur is, it, it, it connotes. It, and I think in, in, the, in the, uh, the literal Greek word for it, since I'm not Scott Ziegler, I think is, is, is irritates. Mm. So there's a sense that it's got to, there's, there's this good unpleasantness that helps us grow. Nice. Well, better part two, going into seven to 12 Extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and benefits those who seek the sun. Wisdom Wisdom is, is a shelter as money is a shelter, but the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it, 
And so three quick points here. In verse 7, when the wise compromises, he acts like a fool. And that just reveals something. When the fool compromises, I don't know if the fool is really compromising, but the fool to act foolish is pretty natural. But when the wise compromises, and that's something about our society, is that usually our society expects a Christian to compromise his convictions. And the, the, our society will say something like, you know what, Christian, if you're compassionate, then the compassionate Christian must compromise convictions. And how dare you believe what you believe? Because that's not compassionate. That's not tolerant. There goes back to that scale we were talking about earlier. But when the wise compromises, he, look, he acts like a fool. And in verses 8 to 10, have a patient long-term view of life. Dwelling in the past has little value. There's, it, history is great. My brother's a history teacher. This is, it's great to study history. It's great to understand what has gone before but to dwell there. You know, I remember when, um, when, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and they, they followed a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. For them to know where to go, they had to follow where the cloud was, or they had, where the cloud had gone. They had to follow the cloud. They didn't go back in time and say, hey, where was the cloud previously? Where did we have the tabernacle before? Let's go back there for a while. And they also didn't try to get ahead of the cloud and try to figure out what God was going to do and where he was leading them. They just actively followed wherever God was leading them. They didn't go back in the past and deify that, and they didn't race ahead and do anything else. So dwelling in the past has little value. And finally here, wisdom is a pursuit like possessions are pursuits. One isn't going to sustain you, one's not. And I just like how he says that wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. He's making a dichotomy there. There's two shelters there. One is wisdom and one is money. And, uh, but one's going to actually preserve you and the other one is not. And we talked about that last week, Mick, where if you're, if you're going after possessions, the possessions aren't going to, that life, that pursuit, that's not going to bring you lasting value. So what do we think here of uh, these, these five verses here, Mick? Seven to twelve. Anything standing out here that is uh... well, yeah. As far as you know, even with the wisdom, we're trying to keep it also in, in context here. Again, he says wisdom is better, and that's the whole thing. It's it's this better than, but even still, wisdom itself is not it. Wisdom is just better than not having wisdom. Hmm. And he still points to to the limit. He still talks about the limitations of wisdom itself. Um, on one hand, um, I see where I am today is not necessarily where I necessarily envision myself. Um, for one thing, I don't have a full set of hair, so there's that. Um, but you know, these are the sort of things that, again, wisdom can only take you so far. Well, we have some questions here. What would having the long-term view of life look like? This idea of I'm going to kind of like play the long game of life. I'm going to just kind of just, there, there, there's a line, oh, there was, it's a great, great movie, The Prince of Egypt. And uh, look at this, look at your life through heaven's eyes. And the long view of life, what advantage does that kind of perspective have for somebody, Mick? Well, again, um, you, you, um, you realize that, that, um, you, you have to live your life. You know, we don't know if there's going to be a tomorrow, but on the off chance that there is a tomorrow, how will today make tomorrow better? I think that's, that's kind of a, a, a long view of life. You have to, 
you have to live in, in, in anticipation of certain things, which means that you can't live in such a way that, you know, going back to that YOLO, you only live once kind of mentality, because there is a good possibility you will be here, to, just as there is a possibility that you won't be here tomorrow, there's a, there's a good possibility you will be here tomorrow. And are you going to deprive yourself, waste all your resources all today? You can't live that way. What stands out about the two paths that Kohalith is contrasting here? You got one, one a, a path more of a, a wise path. And by the way, that path implies that you're going to be traveling that path. And you very rarely travel a path in a day and you're done. You're, you're, you're moving towards someplace and it's going to take you days and days and days. And you're, you're processing and you're traveling and you're moving forward. You got two paths here. What stands out about these two paths? Is there anything that you could, um, that just stands out as we've gone these first 12 verses so far? Well, again, one, one anticipates and, and acknowledges the reality of hardships, that life is unpredictable. And, and the other one wants to live in such a way that it's oblivious of that, that reality. And, and, it, and, and in doing so, it, it's ripe for all of life's pitfalls, whether they happen or not. Nice. Yeah, in, in terms of, I, 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 I like that acknowledgement idea you just painted. And in terms of an illustration, for the listeners out there, I invite you, if you do not have somebody in your life that, um, well, I have, I have a dear friend of mine who's in his mid-70s. And I do, I volunteer, I, I, I go and I spend time uh, with people and I, I, I do a worship service in a nursing home. And, uh, and I, so I regularly meet people who are very, very, very much older than me. And so my question is, if you were to unburden your heart with a much older person, what would they say? So this kind of long-term view of life, if you were to, let's say you go to visit a nursing home and you make a friend there, and let's say they're in their you know, late 80s or early 90s, and you're talking with them and you're hearing their story, and, uh, and they love that, by the way, but you're hearing the story and they, they, they ask you about your life and you begin to say, oh, wow, my marriage or oh, my kids or my job. And you just unburden yourself. Now, imagine you're in that scenario right there. What do you think that older person is going to say to you? That's the long view of life because they've lived to a degree. They've probably seen it all. They most likely have gone through what you've gone through. And I bet they have some great wisdom. It might boil down to something like this. This too shall pass. Or I remember when I felt like that 60 years ago. Here's what I did. And here's what I remember. I'm getting that vibe here as we read Ecclesiastes, Mick, is that if I were to, even, if I were to do that with somebody, what would they tell me? Especially if uh, I was seeking a mentor figure. You know what? Teach me what you have learned and what has worked for you, what has not worked for you. And can you point me in the right direction? Uh, yeah, I, I know I have that kind of person in my life. And they have... Uh, They've given me the perspective that I needed and helped me to have that longer term view of life. And uh, do you see any value in that, Mick? Have you ever had that? Is there anybody you've ever gone to that is that uh, would fit that category? I think uh, most of my friends are at least uh, a generation older than me. I, I, I usually tend to be, uh, if not the youngest, one of the youngest guys in, in, in the group of friends that I, I and again, a lot, it has to do with the fact that I value wisdom. One of the things that, uh, Will Smith said, and I'm sure I'm paraphrasing to him to some extent, was that he liked hanging out with the older kids because hanging out with the older kids always made him better. And I think that that's kind of my mindset with, 
with these uh, older guys in my life. I like hanging out with them, not necessarily because they're smarter than me or anything like that, but there's something about the fact that they're ahead of me in, in the race of life that they can let me know about the turns that are coming ahead. They, they know where, you know, I, I think of it in, in the longs of lines of a marathon. They know where the snack stand is going to be. And they're going to tell you, oh, don't worry about it. There, there's a there's a porta potty over there. So, you know, don't don't get too anxious about this or that. And, and I could see them kind of in the same way speaking about that in, in terms of wisdom of life. I mean, bottom line, they'd probably be telling me, Mick, um, if I were you back then, I would I would have invested in, in stock in Zoom and, and toilet paper. And for any of you out there who are thinking, well, gosh, I just don't have that person in my life. And, you know, we're all kind of keeping social distancing right now. And even Mick and I are recording in two separate locations and utilizing the, the wonders of technology to make this podcast happen. Thank you. Yeah, from thousands of planes, right? Yeah, that's right. We're, we're in two different suburbs in Chicagoland. We're using the, uh, the Anchor app. And uh, some of you are listening on Anchor. Some of you are listening to Apple Podcasts or Google or Spotify or something like that. Welcome. We're so glad to have you. You might say, gosh, Big Rev, I don't have an older person in my life. Say, so, okay, I've got another I've got another illustration for you. What counsel would you give your much younger self about priority? So let's say, let's say uh, you could go back in time and talk to your to yourself in junior high and all the drama going on in your junior high or maybe in your high school or maybe you're a young adult. You know, I, I had a moment like that. I, uh, one of the, the, the last weddings I did, I'm a pastor, I do I do some weddings. And I did a wedding of a dear friend of mine named Thomas and uh, with his bride. And uh, I was sitting there thinking, what am I going to do in my sermon? You, you know, the, you have a wedding ceremony. And usually the pastor gives a little homily or something like, what am I going to say? So I'm driving up into Wisconsin trying to think about it. And the uh, listening to the Christian music station. And uh, is it Mercy Me? The band it has a song called Dear Younger Me. And he just goes on about what he would tell himself. Um, as a younger person, and I'm thinking that is exactly what I'm going to do in my wedding sermon. I'm going to say, listen, this is which the, the, here's here's three or four things I wish I would have been told in my wedding sermon about what's coming up. And like like you shared, make about, hey, this is coming up around the next bend. So just get ready for it. And you know what? Don't freak out right here because this is going to happen. And I, I tailored myself to that. And it was very cathartic for me because it was almost like a time travel experiment with myself. And uh, try, I got to bless somebody else, but it was it was a blessing to even think that way. And uh, so maybe you've got an older person you can listen to, but maybe you don't. But maybe you can think about what you would say. What have you learned? And as you share your story with people, one of the things you share is, you know what? What have you learned along this path? What, what, what are some of the things that you now hold on to? Like, oh, wow, I've learned this and I've learned that. And uh, what would you tell yourself about priorities? And uh, yeah. It's one of the things I learned in my first, oh my goodness, this, this is awful stereotypical, I guess, but at my first uh, high school reunion is that some of the guys that were the coolest guys, they were all balding and they all had little paunches on their belly. And, um, and for some reason I was still a big guy, but I had hair and I kind of maybe feel a little bit better. And, uh, and, and some of the, some of the women that I thought that, that, that were just the hottest thing in, in high school back then, like, you know what? I, I don't know how you age. It's like you look back at what, what seemed to be important back to you in high school, the things that you live for, they just don't seem to matter. Those clicks, they just don't matter anymore. And uh, you live this life, you learn different priorities. Uh, but before we move on to, to verse 13, make any, anything, any lasting uh, la last words about these first 12 verses. 
Uh, no, man, you know, along the lines of what you were talking about, just life is a marathon. And, and no matter how long or not your life is, just trust God all the way. Uh, God is about, is not about religion. He's about relationships. And regarding that relationship part, because I think this is the, the component that we often miss, that how I relate to others is a mirror of how I'm relating to God, especially when it comes to, to others being in the faith community. I'm glad you mentioned religion and religion. If you look at the Old Testament, re, the, re, the religions that were outside of Israel, they all seem to be about control, especially when you look at the uh, the ancient Near Eastern religions like the Baal worship. Baal was the lightning god. Lightning brings rain and thunderstorms bring rain or rain waters crops and crops bring your harvest. And so you, you better worship Baal in order to get the crops for the next year. And that's your entire economy. It's all about control. And in the New Testament context, you've got the Roman Empire. You've got this idea that if I can, uh, this whole worshiping of gods and goddesses, if I, if I give them this, then I'm going to get a quick pro quo. They're going to scratch my back. And so religion at its core seems excuse me, seems to be about control. And so this next section is called control. And as we read this, think about, is that how God works? And is that how, is that how we're to relate to God? So here we go. Verse 13 to 22. It's going to be a lot here, but uh, it's a good, good processing. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked. Do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise makes one wise person more powerful than 10 rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. So number one here, the universe is not a predictable machine where wisdom brings the key and control. Life is complex and personally governed by God, who cannot be manipulated or controlled. So you got this guy trying to consider the future here in uh, in verse 14. You can't discover anything about your future. So maybe if I can, I can figure out what God wants. And then once I figure out what God wants, I can then do it. And then once I do it, then I got an, I've got a leg up on life and I've got I've got God by the by, by by the short hairs there. God has to come through for me because I did this. And certain people view God that way as if, well, if I just read my Bible and pray and go to church and be a good Christian, then maybe God has to come through for me. I remember a number of years back um, that this, this idea came out, pray the prayer of Jabez. If you pray this prayer, good things are going to happen to you. And that's a control thing. And God is not, well, has that been your experience, Mick, that people would try to use religion to try to get some kind of an outcome? You know, it's, as you were saying, the prayer of Jabez, that, that was the picture that was coming to mind about that sort of stuff. Oh, I hate reducing God to rituals and formulas. It diminishes his personhood. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and again, it goes back to chapter one, verse three. The whole the, the whole thing about leveraging. You know, that's the that's the question. What, what do we hope to leverage? What do we hope to control? Mm. 
The wise person accepts the good and the bad from God's perspective, verse 14. And this is not this is not anything new. We, we've had this before. When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, well, consider this. It's like this is both coming from God. So if God is still God, then what do you have to worry about? It's It goes back to like the Psalm 31. I trust you, God. I say, you're my God. My times are in your hand. Your time is not in your hand. So it's kind of like this ID here and this control is, I've got to learn, it's like theology 101 is I'm not God. And once I understand that, then since God exists and I'm not God, then who is God? And so therefore, who, how do I relate to the one who is God? And yeah, it, that, that perspective begins the journey into understanding life and understanding uh, God. It's just the basic understanding is that he's not, he's not me and I'm not him. And so... I think, I think where Kohalath is going here is you got to understand God and you got to seek to understand this very relationship that you're not him. And I think he's going to continue with going to, you know what, but you're also not your neighbor. So you got to do right by them as well. So religion being about something about loving God and then loving others. And yeah, well, number four here, wisdom gives the appearance of humanistic control over one's destiny. But alas, Life is not to be lived as something fashioned after you. And so many people want to reduce God into their own terms and put them in. Our, and, and, you know, the, the scripture tells us in Genesis that we are made in the image of God. But so many people want to make God in the image of themselves. And therefore, they can try to live life their own way and by their own standards. And they get to be the ones making the decisions. And they get to be the ones who are in control. And. That's pretty bad stuff, huh, Mick? Is that, is that, is that a way to, to really go forward with God to, to, to reduce them? Is, is, is God is someone who can be reduced? Uh, again, no. This reminds me of Job's friends. They thought that they had God all figured out. That's why they were condemning Job all along, not realizing what was going on in, in, the, in the heavenly realms. They, they started judging because if you're doing everything by the script, Job, that shouldn't be happening to you. You must be doing something wrong, which obviously wasn't the case. Right. I, I love how in 16 to 18 here, do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise, and then don't be over-wicked, don't be a fool. It's as if, uh, I put it here, furthermore, the way you live or don't live, it has no bearing on God and his decisions. So it's not like God sitting up there and, 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 and pacing the corridors of heaven, mopping his brow, saying, what is Mick going to do? Mm-hmm. I've, gi- I've given Mick this decision, and boy, I just can't wait to find out. Because, you know, once, once, once I find out what he's done, I know what to do. So yeah. I've got to wait. I mean, he wasn't that way with Adam and Eve either. Is Eve going to take mm-hmm. the apple or not? I mean, this is not, God's not dependent upon my decision. Is if it's okay, God's waiting on me to see if I'm going to live a righteous life or a wicked life to know what he's going to do with me. That makes God dependent upon me. And that makes me just a little bit of God and God a little bit, not God. And Mick, I don't want you to worship any God that's, that's dependent upon me in any way, because that that's just ridiculous. And the, the last thing you want to do is worship that kind of God. And uh, yeah, wisdom has value, but the wise person is still a flawed person. I, I love this concluding analogy here. He gives, and um, he says, there's no one on earth that's righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. And he, said, he just basically went to Romans 3 right there. And I said, you know what? Just when you think you've got it, 
and how you're wise and your wisdom is powerful and he gives you all these things. But just, just remember, you're not righteous and there's no one that's righteous that never sins. So good luck with that. And then don't pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. And you know, in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Um, yeah, your attitude. Uh, so wisdom has value, but the wise person is still a flawed person. And your attitude towards others should be bathed in an awareness of your own flaws. Has that ever come across your path, Mick, where you see somebody, uh, what's the old line, but for the grace of God, go I? Yeah. It's like you, you see someone doing something and you're tempted in your heart to start condemning them. And you realize, oh, yeah, that probably was me. I've done that myself. You know, and going back to Job, you know, uh, you know especially um, in chapters 38 through 41, even though Job was wise, and he was wise, um, he, God, the big thing that God showed him is, you're not in my league. You're not me. You know, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? I mean, he basically had a, a mic drop moment where Job had to say, you're right. I'm saying quiet at the end. Even the best of us, we're, we're not God. And I think that's it's kind of a very key reminder as, as we work through this book. Yeah. The religion of self seeks to control life and try to force God's hand. And that's something we're seeing here in this section of control this uh, acting a certain way and then God has to work. And, and a lot of people like to say Christianity is not a religion. It's rather it's a relationship. And there's value to that because the one, the moment you reduce, reduce it to a religion. I mean, this goes back to the 10 commandments, Mick, where um, you you have, you should have no other gods before me. You should not make any graven images because the moment you make a graven image, you got to take care of that image. And you got to, you have to tend to that statue and you got to do all these things. And there's an implicit quid pro quo with God. Yeah. Where you can say, you know what, God, I did this for you. So why haven't you come through for me? I'm expecting this, God. And that manipulation has no business. Manipulation has no business in any healthy relationship. And especially not with a relationship between a human and the divine. And so it's uh, this whole idea of a religion of self. You can try to control life and try to force God's hand. That's been all, all over the place in the book of Ecclesiastes. Someone who wants to have their best life now. Someone who wants to have this, 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 and this. And so if I only do this, then I'm going to get this and this. To reduce God and the things of God to a, a well-oiled machine or like one of those uh, coin machines you see where you put a quarter in, you turn the crank, and you're always going to get a prize. If you do this, you're always going to get that. And that's not – it's like we have no key when it comes to God. There is no, there is no manipulation. There is no crank to turn. There's nothing like that. No, that's not really yeah, it makes God in our control versus us depending upon God. And yeah, true religion, you can look at this in Book of James, is all about love of God and love of neighbor. And uh, fearing God and remembering who he is impacts how you treat others, even how you live. And uh, Mick, any further thoughts about life and our choices from this section here that you have from 13 to 22? Uh no, I think you pretty much covered it. So, so who, if we say God's in control, if we say we worship God, and I mean, even look at the um, the Shema from uh, from Deuteronomy six, Hero Israel. In fact, uh, recording this on Holy Week, this is the week of Passover, Happy Passover, and uh, we're marching towards Good Friday, and of course, uh, Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, and uh, the Shema, Hero Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And 
yeah, it, he's God. He's in control. And he's not uh, dependent upon me. I rather am dependent upon him. And so I am to love him with all of me. And that love is a covenant word that's like I am to obey him. And in fact, that word Shema to hear really means to hear. And to, it's like uh, to listen, to put into practice, to, 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 to do something. It's like when you tell your kids to, to do something, you expect them not just to hear your words, but actually start doing it. And yeah, there's, there's something about control. The more I am in control, the, least, the less of a worshiper I am and the less of a disciple I am. And this goes back to the whole me- mentor versus audience. Uh, gathering around you a yes man versus a mentor. When you have a mentor, you're not really in control. You are submitting yourself under a mentor's hand and guidance versus when you're on stage and people are telling you how good you are, you're always in control. And this, this control is like a, just a, 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 wor- a worship of the self. And there's no surprise, Mick, when Jesus says, you want to follow after him, you got to deny yourself. Yeah. Well, we have a, a Romans 11 note here. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. You know, Job found that out. I'm finding that out. I imagine you're finding that out. And uh, we have some great reflections here as we close this out. And uh, Koheleth has some reflections. And you know what? I, I just got to be up front. There's at least one of these that doesn't play right in our current culture. And people have read parts of this chapter. Um, I believe it's verse uh, 20, well, 26 to 28. And it's not how you would say politically correct. It's not, uh, some people would say it's sexist. And uh, some people look at this and go, what in the world? Is this what the Bible is all about? And uh, no, something can be in the Bible and just be a little drop in the ocean, but that doesn't make the ocean bad. And, um, well, let's just, let's just sally forth here. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, and the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching, but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only I have found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone to search of many schemes. So some reflections here. Number one, wisdom is not something you just add to your life or upgrade your existence in 23 and 24. This whole idea of, of life is not, okay, I've got the Jesus app. Now if I just get the, uh, if I go to the app store and make sure I get the, the latest version and I upgrade it, I'll be all right. As if uh, my, my, my relationship just needs an upgrade. Uh, wisdom isn't just something you add to your life. It either becomes your life or it doesn't become your life, it seems. Number two, and yet Kohaleth pursued wisdom and found some things he wished to reflect upon. Number three, he, he, he speaks of one who has been burnt by sin and its effects upon relationships. In fact, if before we, we, we really jump at this and go, wow, what a sexist fool. He's talking about women that way. If he's making us think he's Solomon, 
how many women in relationships does Solomon have in his life? My goodness, his whole world, his whole world was women and relationships and the drama that comes with all those relationships and all these things. And I bet he's burnt a few women and been burnt by, by a few women. This idea that sin enters relationships and bad things happen. And what he, uh, he concludes here, what man selfishly searches for in life is in opposition to God. If you're selfish about your searches, you're never going to find God. You're never, you're, it's never going to be something that's going to, to implicitly lead to God, the very God who expects you to, to, to not to deny yourself and to not live selfishly, but selflessly. Wow. What do we think about these verses, Mick? These are some, hard, some, some harder ones from 23 to 29. I'm going to tell you this. First of all, I am not going to touch that one about the woman with a 10-foot pole. I, I looked up a guy like <laughs> MacArthur. He was silent on that verse. I looked up D.A. Carson, and he was, and he admitted to being confused by it, too. I mean, at this point, that's going to be, be one of those, uh, you know, along with the author of Hebrew, I think that's going to be one of those. Do you mind clarifying this for me in heaven? Um, so let me start off with that one right off the bat. That one's the kind of I don't know. At this point, I'm taking it by faith. I'm trusting God. There's a point there. I'm just not getting it. And you know what? I have a feeling that a lot of us are not getting it. It seems like a lot of nobody can really comment on it. Uh, but, you know, he talks in this chapter, especially, he talks a lot about wisdom. And I, I was th- reflecting on, on, on the whole thing about wisdom. What wisdom is and what wisdom isn't. What wisdom is, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a life jacket on, a, on an airplane. Um, the, the airplane... Should that airplane fall, the, the life jacket will keep you afloat, but it, it doesn't save your life if you really think about it. Because if you're out in the middle of the ocean, and unless God comes to save you, and he gets there before the shark, was the life jacket a good idea? Yes. Is it a good thing? Yes. Is it what ultimately saves you? Not really. It saves you momentarily. And that's the thing about wisdom. It, 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 it's very finite. It's better than money. It's better than perfume. It's better than wealth. But in in the in the scheme of eternity, you know, we need God more than we need the life jacket. We need we need the Savior. We need His salvation more than we actually need the life jacket. Verse twenty nine again. This only have I found: God created man upright but they have gone in search of many schemes. So the schemes again, so he's, he's searching and searching. It's, it just communicates to me that, and I do this myself. I know when I am at my most sinful, I'm this way. When God becomes not enough, when what God has provided for me is not enough, then I go searching for something. Okay, God, you provided this, but now I want this and I'm expecting this. And I wish, and I think that at least from my understanding and, and just my, the experiences I found in life, if I was writing these reflections as Koheleth is, uh, I found that the, when I have that perspective, when I have that mentality that God, you're not enough. And when I'm not satisfied with your, with God's provision, when I seek more, that's when I am tempted the most. That's when I struggle and fall the most when God is not enough. And I just like, I, God created man upright, but they have gone in search of schemes. 
It's like God made this, God did this, and now we have done this. And we have added to this, and everything we're adding is not good. And we're, we're doing things. And uh, Mick, what schemes do we search for in our selfish dissatisfaction with God? What, what, are some, what are some big ones that we seem to run after as we're dissatisfied with God? Hmm. Huh. Well, we, we oftentimes I think we, we res- it, it, it's a byproduct of being impatient. So you, you try to fill, uh, you know, we pray for something and, and instead of trusting God, when we pray to him for it, we get impatient and then we try to take matters into our own hands. I think that's kind of where, where it's going with this. Um, we, we get impatient. We try to take matters into our own hands and we do things the wrong way. Uh, an example of this would be uh, Abraham and Sarah when, when, when they, they thought they were helping God along. And they really weren't. And because they weren't patient with God, they, they sinned. Adam and Eve were impatient in the garden instead of waiting for God's, you know, next conversation. And they got impatient and, and they went ahead and sinned. And I think uh, at the root of a lot of this is impatience because because of a lack of maturity that that we don't have. Because, again, we're not God. And I think some of this impatience, I, I, I'm thinking of a great point there, Mick. I think some of this impatience goes back to our possessions mm-hmm. in that somebody who doesn't have those possessions, so somebody who literally has to pray the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, is saying to God, God, if you don't provide for me my daily bread, I'm not going to eat. And I don't really have anything in, in, in reserve. I just have to depend upon you. Yeah. And I could see them being coming impatient as well because because my, my dad was like this for many years. He was always praying things like, well, when's my greener pasture going to come, God? When am I going to finally get the blessing promised to me, God? Why do I continue to struggle with this, God? And I, I just I, – so there, there's either side of the fence there has got, got issues, but uh, in terms of impatience, I could see. But to be satisfied with God, God, you're enough, and – the single person has to face this when they're, when they're not married yet. And the childless couple has to face this when they don't have kids yet. And the unemployed person has to face this. when They don't have a job yet. And when they're constantly waiting upon the Lord and they read that verse and they're saying, gosh, I want to rise on wings like eagles, but I have to wait. I have to wait. I have to wait. And the heart check there is, am I dissatisfied? Yeah. Is God enough? Cause if he, if he is enough, then all of a sudden everything changes and that I can trust him with this day. And then the next day comes, and I'm still praying for my daily bread, and I'm going to trust him in that day. And then the next day comes, the same deal, same deal. And we, do, we want to run away and search for more as if we deserve more or something different because we love variety. Or it's like we're just not satisfied with God. So we run after, basically we're running after ourselves, And we're constantly searching for the thing that's going to make us feel better about whatever we're dealing with or cause us to forget about things we want to forget about, or cause us to not deal with things we should be dealing with. And it's all one big, huge escape. Mm-hmm. And I, I bet you can, you, can re, you can reduce religion to that as well. Religion is all about control, but control is all about escape. I want to escape either consequences, I want to escape dealing with something, or rather escape dealing with someone, God, because if I have to deal with someone, if I have to actually have to, to, to deal with him and, 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 and what, what he has for me or I got to follow his way 
or accept, you know, the consequences. Um, that's what it comes down to in life, it seems like. And uh, what's your pursuit? Are you trying to escape or are you trying to, well, what it, what is an escape? And I, and I think the worst part of it is that why do we do that considering that God has such a great track record? God has an awesome track record. We see this time and time again, first and foremost in scripture, but we've also seen it in our lives where, where God has, you know, you look back and you realize, oh, God got me out of this. God got me out of that. When I thought we were sunk here, he pulled me out of that. But yet we keep falling into it, you know? Amen. Our closing verse is from James 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So it sounds like James to say there that, hey, you know what? You were a wise person. Um, this is something you'd learn from a mentor. You're not all that. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot to learn. Yeah. And so stay, stay humble. It's like uh, if the wise person stays humble, it seems. And the wise person realizes that there's something bigger than them. There's something more important than them. And that, that the whole world doesn't revolve around them. And I think we, we, saw, we saw that in our text yeah. today. We saw this idea that uh, I've got to turn to God. And uh, life just doesn't revolve around me. And... And I, I am not really in control of all the things I think I'm in control of, especially if I want to call myself a person of faith or call myself a wise person. Make any concluding words. You know, just so that goodbye. everybody understands that this is not a one-off, this James 3.13. And I'm just only giving two more examples of this. This happens in Romans 12.3, where Paul says the same thing. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And in Philippians 2.5. We should all have the mind of Jesus. And it talks about how Jesus humbled himself, being God himself, to become like us. So humility is very big in God's economy and in a proper view of him, not trying to be like him, like Adam and Eve were in the garden. And how we do when, whenever, whenever we go into sin, that's basically what we're trying to do. We're trying to be the God, our own gods. And uh, we got yeah, to snap out of that. Yeah, I bet that ties back to having a the good name probably comes from being about other people, not to be about being yourself and about yourself and being um, the true value comes from the humility that life can bring, that you don't know everything, that you do depend on other people and you depend upon God and you trust other people then to help guide you. And you're not the expert. You're always the learner. And that is a great life lesson from Kohalath today. Well, this has been Mick and Joel from Masterclass Theology in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. God bless. God bless. Amen. Adios. And everybody have a great, great Friday and happy Easter.